Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Willie Rennie. Yeah. Number one, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, so this morning I have meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I will have further such meetings later today. Just what does it take for the Prime Minister to accept the Home Secretary's resignation? Yeah. Well, I believe it is important that the system that has not worked properly for decades is now sorted out. He is sorting it out. And I think it is right, it is right that he continues to do that. Michael Foster. With educational standards rising consistently in our schools, will my right honourable friend join me in encouraging head teachers to sign up eligible pupils to the government's National Academy for Gifted and Talented Youth, so that many more young people get an education that is best suited to their individual needs? Well. My honourable friend is absolutely right to draw attention to the success of the Academy that is working with some 85,000 very able young people across the country. And we want to extend this programme so that those who are especially gifted and talented within our schools and who very often have not had the opportunities within the state system are able to access those opportunities irrespective of their wealth and get the very best education tailored to their personal needs. The Home Secretary was told last July about the scandal of dangerous prisoners released onto our streets instead of being considered for deportation. The Prime Minister has now had a week to find out what's actually going on in the Home Office. Can he explain why the rate at which prisoners were released and not deported actually accelerated after the Home Secretary found out about it? Yes, I can explain that. Um, back in August of 2005, and this is before any parliamentary questions were raised about this issue. The practice of the Immigration Department changed so that instead of relying on the prisons to notify them of the release dates of prisoners, they sent immigration officers directly into prison. That therefore meant that many more cases were identified, and I can give the right honourable gentleman the figures, that after that point, there were actually 1,000 actual removals and deportations and 3,000 cases considered. So the rate at which cases came to the Immigration and Nationality Department increased dramatically. However, from the 30th of March, now every case is considered before release. And that, let me tell the House, is the first time that has happened for decades. That is absolutely no explanation why the rate accelerated. Isn't the reason why the number accelerated made clear by a senior immigration officer? He said this, there was an unwritten rule at the end of their sentence that we could remove them early. His party also voted against that act. So I suggest that we now take the measures necessary, not just to improve the way the existing system works, which the Home Secretary has done, but change that fundamentally for the future. Say, I look forward to the Home Secretary's statement. I stuck around to listen to his statement last week when the Prime Minister scuttled out of the building. Right. In, in, March this year, in March this year, the Home Secretary was told that a significant number of the criminals released and not deported had committed the most serious offences, including murder and rape. It's now clear he didn't tell the Prime Minister for three weeks. 
Does the Prime Minister agree with me that this is the sort of information a Prime Minister should be told at once? The important thing was that from the 30th of March onwards, the new system that was put in place meant that the... I'm sorry, meant that the cases were considered prior to release. That has now been done. The backlog is now being dealt with. But I return to the point that I have made. On, no, on any basis, for years, we have not been deporting all those people convicted of a serious criminal offence. I say now, let us deport all of those people, and I hope we can get support from that, for that right across this House, because up to now, every time we have taken these measures, they have been opposed by the party opposite. Let's just be clear about what we've heard. Murderers, rapists, paedophiles released from prison, and the Prime Minister doesn't want to know immediately. What sort of government is that? At the weekend, the Prime Minister was asked whether the Home Secretary should resign. He said, it depends. On what does it depend? I do not believe that the Home Secretary has created the problems of this system. I believe those problems have existed for a very long time in the way that I have described. I think it is important that we take the measures necessary to sort out the existing system that has been done, and that is why since the 30th of March the cases have been considered prior to release. But I think there is a far bigger question, which actually was raised by the Shadow Home Secretary earlier, which is the fact is, even if all the cases are considered prior to release, we do not, at the moment, deport all those people convicted of a serious criminal offence. Now, the truth is, even if we take those cases that had been considered, there is still a significant number that, having been considered under the existing system, that has, as I say, been in place for decades, do not then get deportation. And therefore, in my view, it's not just a question of the existing system. It's making sure that that system is radically overhauled so that those that are convicted of a serious criminal offence are deported automatically. And if we do not do that, we may consider all the cases in time, but we won't deport all the people that should be deported. The fact is, a thousand people were released from prison and their deportation wasn't even considered. This Home Secretary will forever be associated with the scandal of releasing foreign prisoners onto our streets. While the Prime Minister keeps him in office, his claims to be tough on crime will be completely hollow. Aren't people now paying the price for the arrogant attachment to office of a leader who's completely lost control? This is pre-arranged soundbite. Let me just tell him that, as I've just pointed out to him, and I notice he didn't come back on any of the facts that I gave him, this is a system which has not considered all those cases prior to release at any point, even if those cases were considered, significant numbers have always not been deported. As I said to him a moment or two ago, actually at the time when he was working in the Home Office, they had to admit that around 6,000 prisoners in the system at any one time didn't even have their nationality identified. So all I am saying very simply is this. There are faults with the present system in its implementation. Those since the 30th of March have been corrected. But the real issue which we have to face in this House if we want to deal with the public concern is to change the system itself. David Anderson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Is my right honourable friend aware of the decision handed down today from the House of Lords related to the amazing state of the sufferers in this country who were injured at work through being illegally exposed to asbestos? Is he also aware of the devastating impact this will have 
on thousands of workers and their families, and can he give them some comfort today? Well, I understand the, the problem that my honourable friend raises about the injury to asbestos, and perhaps the best thing is for me to find out from the Department of Trade and Industry what the up-to-date position is and write to him about it. Sir Mingus Campbell, yeah. is, the, is the Home Office fit for purpose? Is the Home Office fit for purpose? Might be a question, might be a question better asked of the right honourable gentleman. But if I said, I do not believe that the answer to this problem lies in reorganising the Home Office. I think that the, the fit between prisons, immigration and asylum and crime is actually the right one. The issue is the way the system works. And I simply say to the right honourable gentleman, I pose the same question to him as I do to the right honourable gentleman there, that if we really want to deal with this issue, we have to be prepared to say we're going to deport people back to their countries if they're convicted of serious criminal offences, because whether we consider their case or not, the majority of people that the public is concerned about are people whose cases have been considered but not deported under the existing system. Let me make it clear that when the Prime Minister produces his proposals, we will obviously consider them in detail. But in the last nine years, we've had dozens of pieces of law and order legislation. Order, order. Allow the right honourable gentleman to be heard. Sir Mingus Campbell. In the last nine years, we've had dozens of pieces of law and order legislation, and hundreds of new offences have been created. Isn't what we need less legislation, better government, and a new Home Secretary? No, I think we do need better legislation, and I'm delighted that he has said that he will examine our proposals carefully. Let me just point out, however, that of the measures that we have taken, one, two, three, four, five, about 12 of them, to tighten up the law on asylum and illegal immigration, he has voted against every single one of them. And he's voted against the criminal justice legislation, and he's voted against the antisocial behaviour legislation. So there are people I will take lessons from in relation to law and order, but not Liberal Democrats. Uh, apart from the minimum wage, statutory holidays, sure start, low unemployment, low mortgages, free ice tests, prescriptions, TV licences, bus travel and £200 winter fuel allowances for pensioners, 2 million children taken out of poverty and 2 million pensioners taken out of poverty, more teachers, nurses, doctors, police, low crime, hospital waiting lists and class sizes, what has the Labour government done for us? Well, I... Well, as the People's Liberation Front would say, there is double maternity pay and double maternity leave. There is also extra child benefit as well. And there is, the, of course, the case that we have spent more on pensioners than we relink the basic state pension with earnings. That and many, many other things. And I could recommend to my honourable friend the excellent booklet published by the Usdor Shop Workers' Union, 300 Labour Achievements. Mr Speaker, under the Prime Minister's new theory of ministerial responsibility, the Home Secretary is staying on to sort this shambles out. Will the, Home Sec will the Prime Minister now tell us how long the Home Secretary has got to do it, and will he be standing down afterwards? 
Well, first of all, for the reasons I've already explained, actually since the 30th of March, for the first time in decades, cases are considered before the release of prisoners from uh, foreign nationals from prison. But I come back to the point that I made a moment or two ago. Actually, one part of dealing with this is to take the measures now to legislate so that everybody, everybody who is a foreign national that serves a prison sentence is automatically deported. Ellen Goodman. I recently visited the Bishop Barrington School in my constituency, which has got a new science lab and a new sports hall. The Labour County Council, working together with the government, has spent £38 million on refurbishing and redeveloping 64 schools in my constituency. Is Bishop Auckland unique, or is this a pattern that is repeated around the country? Well, it's repeated uh, in the next door constituency to my honourable friend, I can tell her that, but also in constituencies up and down the country. The fact is that around about £1,500 per pupil is being spent more by this government. Anybody who goes to their constituency, whether primary school or secondary school, can see the new buildings, often a new school, the new computer equipment, the extra numbers of teachers and classroom assistants. And that is, of course, why larger and larger numbers of our children are passing their exam results at 11, at 16 and 18, and why this education system is improving all the time. It's been blunt. When will the Prime Minister rewrite the Ministerial Code to reflect the new doctrine that the bigger the shambles, the more essential it is the responsible Minister remains in office? (laughs) The very reason I've just given to the Right Honourable Gentleman, his leader and others, this is not a problem created by this Home Secretary. This is a problem, as is perfectly obvious when you look at the facts, and I know he doesn't want to hear them, this is a problem for the first time that is being resolved. Geraldine Smith. Department covering crime, antisocial behaviour, <coughs> drugs, prisons, international terrorism, people trafficking, you know, all sorts of issues. It's, all, it's, it's mission impossible for almost any Home Secretary, isn't it? Isn't it? No, I think this Home Secretary is actually will sort the current problems yeah, out yeah, and, should, yeah, yeah. and should remain in his job. But what I would say, I also, I also think that the Home Office should be split up at some stage in the future with two cabinet ministers with responsibility for each of the new departments. I, I totally understand why uh, my honourable friend says that, but I have to say to her that, in my view, I think that the fit between immigration and asylum and crime and prisoners, on the other hand, is actually a proper fit. And I think that the issue here, which is very, very important when you go back over the history, is that part of the problem is the rules that apply to people when they're eligible for deportation. So, for example, there was the case by the Immigration Appeal Tribunal in the Chintamo case back in uh, the year 2001, when the Home Office were actually prevented from considering deportations early in the prison sentence of the foreign national. And if we don't change the rules, then it doesn't matter what structure we have, then it is going to be difficult to do what I'm sure the public wants, which is to say that if you come to our country and you're a foreign national and you commit a crime, you should go back to your own country. And that is the real part of the issue. And it is absolutely understandable why people raise the issues that they do. But if you look back over the history of this, this is a system that has never worked, and not for reasons to do with structure in the Home Office, but reasons to do with the system itself. Simon Burns. Has the Prime Minister recently read paragraphs 27 to 210 of the Ministerial Code of Conduct? 
When a parliamentary private secretary at DFID publicly calls for the Prime Minister to retire, and when a parliamentary private secretary in the Home Office, no less, suggests that the Deputy Prime Minister should reconsider his position, does that not suggest that collective responsibility has broken down or the government is in meltdown? The question from my honourable friend about the achievements this government gave the answer to the honourable gentleman. I appreciate why he wants to go through the details of the ministerial code, but I think the strength of the economy, the investment in schools and hospitals, issues like the minimum wage, two million pensioners lifted out of hardship, 700,000 children lifted out of poverty. Well, he can shake his head, but there were many people in this country who are grateful for the progress that's been made. Tom Levitt. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Just for the record, neither of the PPSs at Difford, of which I am one, have called for the Prime Minister to stand down. But uh, further, further to the question from my honourable friend Tyne, for Tyne Bridge, will my right honourable friend agree that anyone who has been in receipt of tax credit or pension credits or all of the other wonderful things that he mentioned has got a vested interest uh, in judging which side their bread is buttered and if they want their jam today to continue to vote Labour tomorrow? My honourable friend is absolutely right in drawing attention to the fact that the combination of the tax credits which give enormous support to families, particularly with young children, the extra increases in child benefit, because child benefit, of course, was was frozen under the government opposite, has risen by 25% in real terms, and, of course, the minimum wage, because we not merely introduced the minimum wage in the teeth of the opposition of the Conservatives, but increased it. The combination of the tax credits and the minimum wage is making work pay for people, and it's one of the reasons why we've got two million extra people in work today. But he's absolutely right. There are families that benefit from tax credits, pensioners that benefit from tax credits, and without them, they would be still living in the poverty they were under the Conservatives. Bob Russell. The Prime Minister is probably not aware of the English cultural cleansing by Arts Council England's failure to promote England's traditional folk dance and song. (laughs) (laughs) Nor that Arts Council England has pledged £5.5 million for an arts facility which will promote contemporary Latin American art. Will the Prime Minister seek to find out what is going on at the Arts Council? Well, he's he's right about one thing. I wasn't aware of it. I was hoping he might give us a demonstration of the English folklore dancing. Um, But I will certainly look into it and correspond with him about it. Personally, I I think there's a place for both. (laughs) Mr Speaker, can I bring my right honourable friend's attention to an article in Monday's Times in which the honourable member for Woodspring said his party risked being, and I quote, tilted too much in one direction, and that makes the Conservatives less stable and less attractive. Does my right honourable friend agree that this thinly veiled attack... Oh, order. Order. It's not a matter for the Prime Minister. Have a word with the honourable member for Woodspring. <laughs> uh, Andrew Salou. Motorists who drive dangerously are regularly escaping prosecution through address scams which put them beyond the law. With the road safety bill before Parliament, the Prime Minister could solve this problem now by telling Home Office ministers to get a grip, protect the public and save lives. Will he do so? certainly look into the point the Honourable Gentleman has raised because obviously, in principle, I would be uh, deeply in sympathy with her, but I need to find out exactly the reasons why this has happened. Andrew Dismore. My right honourable friend agree that everyone should do their bit to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, yeah. And in this context, what advice would my right honourable friend offer 
to those planning a new car or contemplating a 2,000 mile private jet round trip to publicise the dangers of global warming. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think everyone, everyone makes... Yeah. Everyone might makes their contribution their own way, but I would, I would say to the, the, the point that my honourable friend makes is right in this sense, that the, the essential thing if we are to tackle climate change is that we get international agreement. And it's just worth pointing out to the House that as a result of the growth now being experienced by China, we estimate that even if we shut down all of the emissions in this country, it would take the Chinese economy around about 12 months to make up the difference. And that is, I'm afraid, what shows how it is absolutely essential. Of course, we've got to continue with our leadership role in this issue, and that's why we will more than meet our Kyoto targets and double our Kyoto targets, and that's important. We take measures here. But there really is no serious answer to climate change except at an international level. Dr. Andrew Murison. The Community Health White Paper published in January this year quite correctly says at paragraph 6.42, community facilities should not be lost in response to short-term budgetary pressures. Yet all four community hospitals in my constituency, plus a 26-bedded elderly mentally infirm unit in Trowbridge and our midwife-led midwifery unit are all scheduled for the acts to sort out deficits. Given that the Health Secretary has today declined me an audience to discuss the impending disaster <laughs> facing my constituents in West Wiltshire, will the Prime Minister at least attempt to reconcile the rhetoric in her white paper with a bitter reality facing my constituents on the ground in West Wiltshire? Again, I have to say to the, the Honourable Gentleman that I mean, I cannot uh, obviously comment in detail on the issues in relation to his, his own healthcare system, though I'm very happy to correspond with him about that. But after all, the West Wiltshire PCT funding has increased by 32% and is going to increase by 25% over the next two years. That's an increase, incidentally, of £31 million. But I hope he understands that whatever amount of money we put into the health service, PCTs and hospital trusts have to live within their means, and we need to sort this system out precisely so that the benefits in the white paper can be achieved for patients. And I would just point out to him, since I think it would be fair to give the other side of the picture for a little balance, that in respect of those waiting over six months for an operation in his area, in 1997 there were almost 12,000, and now the, the answer is three. That is at least some significant improvement. I raise with the Prime Minister a legacy issue, the Olympics legacy. The Olympics has uh, huge potential to benefit uh, uh, communities in London, especially in East London, where my constituency is. Will the Prime Minister uh, commit the, uh, the Olympic Delivery Authority to hold talks with local councillors so that projects to boost employment, uh, sports and better lifestyles, skills training, and sustainable benefits, sustainable de developments for the benefits of communities in London are taken forward. First of all, I I'd like to pay tribute to the work that has been done in my honourable friend's area in respect of the Olympics, and he's absolutely right uh, to say there are enormous potential benefits there, and I'm, I'm sure that the Olympic Authority will be very happy to meet with local representatives. But, I mean, two things will happen beyond doubt. The first is that thousands of jobs will be created in the area, and the second is that the Athletes' Village, after the Games, is going to be converted into 
over 3,500 apartments, which will be a, a mix of, of social housing and other housing, particularly for key workers such as teachers and nurses. And, of course, there's the London Olympic Institute that will be cited there as well. So it's, it's going to be a um, huge development that is going to bring lasting benefit to the people in his area and, of course, the people in the whole of London. Michael Herb. How can the Prime Minister say that every foreign criminal who serves a sentence of imprisonment should be automatically deported when he knows perfectly well that his own Human Rights Act makes that impossible? That is, that is wrong, actually. That is not the reason. And over the time he was... For yes, I'm afraid... I'm very glad that he got to his feet. Very glad that he got to his feet. Because I will remind him of what actually happened when he was Home Secretary. Uh, order. Uh, order. Don't, uh, order. Don't shout the Prime Minister. Don't. Prime Minister. The fact is, before the Human Rights Act... Order. Order. Mr Turner, you keep doing it, but uh, you shouldn't defy the Chair. Uh, before the Human Rights Act, he didn't deport all foreign prisoners, did he? Exactly, which is my point. This system has not worked whilst he was Home Secretary, whilst others are Home Secretary, and it's time to change it. But since he got to his feet, let me remind him of what we inherited from him. The asylum backlog was 60,000. Decisions took 22 months, and the number of removals was one in five. He's got about as good a record as a Liberal Democrat would have had. Yeah.